This is episode number 219 with Vice President of Measurement and Evaluation at Kaplan, David Nimi. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you back on the show. And today we've got a very special guest joining us, David Nimi, who is the Vice President of Measurement and Evaluation at Kaplan. So first things first, what you need to know about Kaplan, if you haven't heard of this organization before, is that this is a very, very large company in the space of education. They were founded in 1938 and over the past 80 years, they have grown significantly. Uh, they service over 10,000 business to business clients worldwide. And we're talking about large organizations here. And in 2017 alone, 491,000 students used Kaplan uh, to prepare for different sorts of exams. So that's 491,000 students worldwide just in 2017. So as you can imagine, this is a very large organization. And what David's role as Kaplan is, is to oversee efforts and improve the quality of measurement across all business units and evaluate how well the students are able to learn, how well Kaplan is delivering its trainings. And so as you can imagine, this is going to be a very exciting podcast because on one hand, we all love to learn. We're all endless learners here, so we can pick up some very valuable tips. And I've picked up some valuable tips from our conversation. On the other hand, why I love this podcast is because it's an industry example of applied data science. So David uses data to perform analytics in the space of education. So he analyzes um, the learning journey, collects data points and applies data science techniques in order to extract insights and understand from a data standpoint how the learning journey can be improved. So very exciting podcast. Whether you want to pick up some educational tips or whether you want to see how data science is applied in a specific industry, which is learning, whether it's online or offline, this is the podcast for you. And by the way, the education industry is booming and it's only going to keep growing. And that's another thing that we talked about in the podcast. So without further ado, I bring to you David Nimi, Vice President of Measurement and Evaluation at Kaplan. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Today, I've got a very special guest on the show, David Nimi, calling in from LA, California. David, how are you going today? Oh, very well, thanks. We were just it's been a nice day, usual great Los Angeles weather. 70 degrees, you mentioned, right? 21 yep, yes. Celsius. Yep. And uh, we were just talking about the snow. When was the last time you went up the mountains to see the snow? Oh, it's been a while, probably 10 years. I mean, we can see it. Mm. During the winter months, usually a little later around January, yeah. you can see the snow on the nearby mountains. But yeah, I've been up there for a while. This do, reminds me, maybe I should go up this year. Yeah, uh, it's always it's always nice to change up a little bit. Do, do you notice um, the how like I've heard that the snow caps are 
reducing in size because of global warming? Is that something you notice from just like looking at the modern? Well, there's less. Yeah, I, I think that's true. There's just less snow in general. And that's partly, um, you know, a function of rainfall in California. When it, when it rains in the area I'm in down in the lowlands, it's snowing up in the mountains. And that's just happening less and less frequently now. Mm. Such a shame, isn't it? Like, yeah. we don't want to lose that completely. No, and, absolutely not. Anyway, mo- moving on to more more exciting topics. <laughs> David, you are the vice president of measurement and evaluation at Kaplan. And I'm super pumped to have you on the show because I have personally, uh, as I mentioned to you before the podcast, I have personally used Kaplan many times uh, through companies where I used to work um, professionally. A lot of them do, or many companies in the world actually use Kaplan for their internal training. And that's, uh, as you correctly point out, that's not the only case where Kaplan is used. And basically, I'm super excited because not only have I used your system, you guys know so much about education and so many of our listeners are passionate about education. So I'm really looking forward to discussing these topics. And to get us like started off, for those of our listeners who are not really familiar with Kaplan, could you give us a quick overview? What does the company do? Well, it's basically an education company. Um, it started out as a test preparation company by Stanley Kaplan decades ago, actually, um, helping students prepare for college admissions tests. And we still have that going on in a unit called Kaplan Test Prep. And they prepare students for all sorts of different um, licensure tests and you know different things that people need, certification tests and so on. But besides that, we have uh, around the world financial training, uh, language schools for students who are preparing, let's say, to go to universities in Australia or the UK or the United States and want to learn English. And um, lots of other different kinds of programs, helping students get into universities. That's kind of a around the world program. So there's a lot going on. Um, and, you know, one of my roles is to help make sure in all of our different educational programs, we're actually using everything we know about learning research and also everything we know about how to measure learning, how to tell whether our students are actually, you know, benefiting from all of our programs. Mm, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Very, very interesting. And so has Kaplan been measuring learning uh, for a long time now? Well, yeah, it's been, you know, sort of a core part. And one of the things I'm working on is how we can make it, um, you know, our measures technically more valid. Because uh, it's actually not easy to measure learning. It's, you know, if you think of learning as, acquiring or developing, you know, skills that you didn't have before. If you're going to measure that, if you're going to measure whether your program has taught students anything, you have to measure effectively what they know at the beginning and also at the end. And you have to do that with equivalent kinds of, of, of metrics. So it's, you know, not actually an easy thing to do. So we're constantly working on improving how we do that. But yeah, it's a critical thing and critical thing we have to do in all of our programs mm, gotcha. and just to paint a better picture of kaplan uh, because the, the i've mostly or the only way i've experienced kaplan training is online is it a fully online uh training um platform or do you have in-person training as well both both mm-hmm. um you know the online university that i mentioned to you earlier kaplan university was a fully online university mm-hmm. um it was actually purchased not too long ago by Purdue University, mm-hmm. which actually wanted to get into um, building up its online programs and, and serving a kind of a wider population than they typically do. You know, it's a very selective high-end university and they want it to be available to people all over the world who might not mm-hmm. be able to 
go to Purdue. So that, that was a totally online thing. But there are lots of programs that happen in offices. A lot of the test prep stuff that goes on, I mean, some students actually want to go and work with an in-person teacher when they're studying for admissions tests and, and so on. Um, and a lot of the training programs, a lot of the financial and language training programs happen in person. So it's kind of a mix around the world of online and um, in person. Okay, gotcha. And uh, so it's not just that, like, I can uh, access the Kaplan training materials through a company, like, for instance, you have a partnership with a big corporate organization, and their employees right. access Kaplan, but I can do it as like an individual, how, how would somebody find your university or materials and access your courses, whether online or offline? Well, you can go to the Kaplan site, Kaplan, Kaplan.com, and, and pretty much, you know, eventually find your way to, to everything. You'd, you know, there's so many different programs around the world. If you're in Australia, let's say, um, you, can, you can find Kaplan Australia companies there. Um, that's that's primarily financial and some language training things going on in Australia. But uh, yeah, but you can, you can find your way there by going to the Kaplan main site too. Okay, gotcha. Uh, totally understand that. Okay, and so uh, on uh, another topic, you recently authored a book, Learning Analytics in Education. Experts explain how to use data to understand and increase learner success. Very exciting. Congratulations on the book, first of all. That's, that's well, always exciting, you. I can imagine. Uh, how did you feel about the writing process? Well, in the end, it came out really well. And I'm you know, happy with the book and um, what we ended up saying in it, which I think is really important. Um, it actually started as a Gates Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation project um, many years, well, several years ago. And their idea, the idea was to kind of lay the groundwork for an integrated field of learning analytics that would bring together uh, experts from many different perspectives, uh, learning scientists, measurement, educational measurement people, psychologists, uh, cognitive researchers as well, and also um, people on the uh, more data analytics side, data scientists, AI people, and so on, um, with the educators who are going to be the people who actually have to use the results of learning analytics and do something about it. And, you know, without getting them into the picture, you're, you know, we're <laughs> liable to do what often happens is, you know, the technical people will come up with all sorts of data that educators can't figure out what to do with. Um, so that was kind of the initial idea. And there were a bunch of different people who ended up writing down, you know, some ideas, their, their thoughts about their aspects, their understanding of their parts of the field. And um, I eventually decided it would be really interesting to get that published as a book. Mm. Uh, so that's what we did. And it was a, you know, took a while, it was a very kind of laborious process working with people who are really pretty famous in their individual areas. And so that means very busy. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, you know, kind of hurting them all, keeping them on track, and getting it done was a, was a big challenge. But uh, but I'm really happy with how it came out. Interesting. I'm fascinated by this field. Like, I never knew actually. Like I suspected it existed, but never actually met anybody who works in the space. So would you say that learning, like this book, is more for uh, educators, so teachers, and people who want to create online or offline curriculums and courses and better help their students, or is it for students as well? Uh, it, it could be for educators who are interested in learning something about learning analytics and what the different aspects of it are. Mm -hmm. um, I think its pro its primary audience is probably more people who are actually going to do learning analytics. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the data science people, um, 
the learning deal science. with data analyzing data about learning. Yes, and that's that's what of course the learning analytics kind of makes that clear. So it's yeah, it's basically analytics that focus on learning and how to improve it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there there's other kinds of analytics going on in education, like you know how do we retain students or how do we get student more students to apply and you know so on. There, those are more kinds of the business sides of it. And it is important to keep students in your program and you want to help them persist and stay in the program because they're not going to learn if they don't. But that's not enough. I mean, we, we also want to make sure they're actually getting some real value out of the time they're spending in our programs. So that's the learning analytics part, too. How do we how do we tell what they're learning and who's struggling and what we can do to help the people who may be having trouble? OK, good. I understand. So that, that book sounds definitely like something I would pick up and I'll, I'll order one for myself because I want to understand learning analytics better. However, for listeners of our podcast who, you know, aren't in the field of learning analytics, do you, let, let's focus on getting some insights from the book that uh, will help them, them learn better. Like I'm sure there's some tips and hacks that you've identified that will help somebody who's learning something. Just you kind of like have more accountability about their learning because there's so much information right now in the world that so easy to pick up a course, to pick up like some, some skill that you want to learn and then like not do it efficiently or in, in general, just let it die off and never learn it. Do, do you think we can do that? Like, what, And you could share some insights from your book? Yes, uh, I actually wrote a chapter on using analytics to improve academic persistence, mm-hmm. which is basically, you know, how to hang in there even mm-hmm. when you're struggling. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of a key thing too, you know, because... Learning isn't always easy, particularly when you're getting into a new field. Mm-hmm. And so when you start to run into challenges, um, that can be that's a problem that's problematic for lots of students. And and just to speak of people in schools, and we'll kind of get back to your question. Yep. Um, you know, some of us probably were pretty successful as we were moving through low or lower levels of our schooling at figuring out, you know, how to cope with might what might not have been great instruction. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, we More could irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, we could use the textbook. We could use our math textbook and figure the math out almost for ourselves, um, even if our teachers were not that great. Yeah. Uh, but if you're, you know, if you're in a situation where you're trying to learn new things, you know, for yourself uh, in your career, there's, to me, there's a couple of key things, and, and this would apply to education in general too. Um, one thing is we waste a lot of time in schools teaching students things they don't really need. And we'd be much more effective teaching the things they do need, like better math skills or, you know, how to write a coherent paper that actually presents evidence on something and persuades somebody of something. Um, you know, we're, we're really neglecting a lot of students when we, when we don't teach them those kinds of basic things and focus on other stuff that they're never really going to use. So making sure you have an understanding of what people working in your field really do and what the skills are and and I would say get that by talking to those people you know what is it you know how to do what kinds of things do you think about what skills do you use in your everyday life and how do I get those kind of skills because you know you want to make sure if you're going to spend time kind of teaching yourself or taking classes or whatever it's going to be things that are actually going to benefit you somewhere in a real life situation um, and, you know, for if people who are interested in something, you know, in, in working in learning analytics, working in education, which is really about, you know, trying to teach other people something and help them learn. Um, you know, there are some really good programs now in different universities. Stanford, I think, has recently started one kind of connected to the book about, you know, how to analyze educational data and, you know, connect, gives you some basic background and learning and, and so on. So, 
Um, we can talk more about that too, just how to get into the field of learning analytics if you want to apply your data science skills to mm-hmm. actually you know, improving schools and, and so on. But anyway, making sure that you know what it is that people who are really good in the field you're interested in actually do and how they got those skills. Mm. Um, I think would be a key thing for people, uh, you know, for anyone who's wants to progress in the field. Um, and I, you know, there, there's actually a program now through Metis, which is a unit at Kaplan too, kind of teach, teaching data science skills to people, but they're working all the time and trying to figure out well, where are the jobs right now? What, what skills do people need for those jobs? So this may seem obvious. I mean, you know, I, I don't know whether it is or not to your, to your audience, but lots of people just stumble on that, you know, trying to get themselves ready for fields for which there aren't going to be any real jobs or jobs that they're actually going to be interested in. Um, and then, you know, there's, if, if you do, if you are trying to study various things, the thing I mentioned before is a big challenge of what to do when you start to struggle. And um, one of the big things we know from research is that's typically, be, it could be, could be a result of a couple of things, but most of the time, it's probably because you don't have some knowledge background that you need to understand the content you're dealing with. So you just you have to hang in there and figure out, well, what is it that I was missing? If I'm having trouble with some technical stuff here that I don't understand, it's, prob- it's most likely not because I'm a stupid person, <laughs> um, but because I just don't have the background. I need to master that. And if you look at people who you know, eventually do become successful in any field, it's, it's much more a result of the time and effort they put in than just being naturally smart, but but that's a big thing that a lot of people get scur- discouraged by, you know, right away when they run into something that seems hard, they conclude it's just beyond then, and I, you know, I'm just not going to be able to figure this out. If you really want to do it, um, you've, you've really got to analyze, well, what is it here that's making this? Maybe I, maybe I missed some other prerequisite course I should have taken, and I go back and do that first, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Wow, wow. That is uh, extremely insightful. Thank you. Like, I'll just recap on those four points you mentioned. Uh, a great tip is to, before you start your learning, go and find out the key things that people in the field actually do. And point number two is how did they get those skills in the first place? So like you can replicate their journey. And uh, right. also be uh, conscious of what's in demand. Like this is a podcast for data scientists. So assuming that everybody's already decided that they want to be in the field of data science, but still understand is, is machine learning going to be in demand? Is, uh, I don't know, that specific type of machine learning that you're learning or in, in that specific industry, is it going to be in demand or is something else going to be in demand? Because you, you made a great point that why study something so hard and be so persistent about something that won't exist in the, in the near future, right? Like they, we already know there are professions that 10 years from now probably won't exist. Same goes for sub domains within a profession like data science. Look out for trends. See what is actually happening. What will what will have what what will be in demand? Maybe it's not in demand now, but like things like robotics, process automation, or forensics analytics. Are those right. things going to be in demand? Geographic segmentation, things like that. And mm-hmm. finally, it loves your comments on why people struggle. It's either lack of knowledge, um, or you just need to realize that you need to sit down and persevere it's sometimes scary isn't it like when you're starting out your learning journey if you look ahead and you're like whoa there's so much i have to learn there's just no, no way i'm just like and maybe you understand you can do it but you also feel that kind of fright or a bit apprehensive about how much there is to do how do you how do you recommend for people to deal with that when they see the volume of learning that they have to go through 
Well, I'll I'll actually recommend uh, something from my personal experience, but this is actually there's there's research on this too. You know, one one way to get started is basically just to get started, mm-hmm. uh, and don't feel like. <sighs> You know, the, there's so much to do here. <laughs> Why should I even try? You know, there, it's it's sort of hopeless. Well, of course, you'll never get anywhere if you if you have that kind of view. But just getting started. I mean, for people who have anxieties about things or afraid to try things, the best thing you can actually do is take some action. Mm-hmm. Get started on some aspect of that huge amount of things that you have to do. And I had the experience when I was working on my um, dissertation, which was actually in learning science, of having exactly that feel, that feeling. I, was, I had taken on such a big uh, project that involved so many students and teaching about 50 teachers how to teach students about un- to understand rational numbers and then administering a bunch of assessments and all that. And then, so that took a long time in itself, setting up the study and then analyzing it and writing about it. And there were a lot of times where I just felt, I don't see how this is ever going to get done. But I finally just told myself, well, if I just spent 10 minutes a day on this, mm. it might take me 10 years, but it will get done. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, so, I, I mean, and that's basically what we would recommend, the research recommends to, to teachers, you know, of any stripe trying to help students who are having trouble getting started. And you can do some analysis of how long you think it's going to take and so on and then figure out, well... I could get, I could be at some point in, you know, eight months if I spent, gee, only 20 minutes a day might get me there. Um, so don't think about the whole task. Just, just think about getting started on something. And it could be, you know, you'll end up going in a different direction, but the steps you take will lead you in, you know, that other direction. Just like, you know, we often tell people who are, can't decide what their career is, is going to be or whatever. Well, get, get going on something. It's better to get going on something and try and do well on that because that will lead you. Even if it's not the thing you want to do, it will lead you to the next better thing in a more effective way than kind of sitting around and thinking about, well, I'm not really sure if I you know, want to go work at Starbucks or whatever. Well, do it. If you don't have any other idea, do that first. And then that will take you somewhere else, you know, that kind of thing. Wonderful. Wonderful. Love it. And I also really... Uh, I side by your recommendation to invest a certain amount of time, like 10 minutes per day. Because my, I initially thought of saying, yeah, a good thing is like break it down into baby steps and, you know, like take one step at a time. And one way of doing that is saying, all right, so, you know, I have to learn, I want to study the field of machine learning, for example. And there's so many different things. Well, you know, baby steps is like, oh, today I'll do simple linear regression, tomorrow logistic regression, the day after and so on. But even in that approach, because you don't know how long it will actually take you, you might procrastinate. And when you get to the day when you have to study logistic regression, you might be like, oh, I don't know, is it going to take me 10 minutes or is it going to take me 10 hours? So by allocating yourself like 10 minutes per day, no matter what you do, you have to do those 10 minutes, right? That way you guarantee to your own brain, to your own self that there's like, that's all you. That's all you're committing to. There's, even if it's a complex topic, you're not going to spend more than ten minutes, and and that way yep. allows your brain to be like more easygoing with, right? Well, yeah, it's more doable, yeah. and um, for, for most people, and it's exactly as you said. If it turns out something you tackle is too much to master in ten minutes, who cares? You yeah. know, you take it up the next day, and you know it might take you three weeks or whatever, um, but you will get there, as opposed to you know, sort of trying to say, well, this is going to take me like 10 hours and I can't spend that much time today. So I think I won't get started. Yeah. Thing. And, and even if like you're doing those 10 minutes and then you get into a state of flow, you get super excited about it and you don't want to stop. 
Like, as long as you can afford not to stop, you can go for 20 minutes or you can go for an hour, but you don't have to. That's the, that's the difference. Right, right, right. And you're, you're putting your um, whole emphasis on the effort, you know, putting in time and effort to master something and not worrying about, gee, is this, too, is this hard for me? And maybe it's easier for other people and they're just smarter, so maybe I should give up on this. That's, that's what kills mm. progress for most people. For sure, for sure. Okay, and like speaking of the field of education analytics, or uh, yeah, so uh, using data science and data analytics in the space of education, a very interesting why or oh, learning analytics. Why I think so is because as we move into the future, one of the things, one of the industries that is indeed going to uh, remain alive, most likely, is education because we see a lot of jobs being transformed, a lot of jobs being replaced, automated by robots. I was recently reading uh, an interesting study that, uh, according to the World Economic Forum, the number of jobs that are done, were done by robots in the world compared compared to humans, I think it was like 21% were jobs done by robots in 2017. And by like 2020, it's going to be uh, more than I think it's going to be like forty nine percent of jobs are going to be done by robots somewhere along those lines. So basically, radical shift, and then we, as we go into the future, more and more jobs are going to be done by robots. And so, like, people are going to need to re-educate themselves. People are going to need to learn new things. People are going to need to you know find new passions, new careers, and and so on. So, field of education is definitely here to stay. Um, and therefore, like, learning analytics is a really really powerful. Um, to have or to know because there's going to be lots of jobs in the space of learning and analytics and learning. So what would you say, like, let's dive into that for a little bit. What are some of the data points that you collect? What are some of the powerful types of data that you collect in learning analytics to help make those um, conclusions derive insights or predictions that you're making in in your job? Well, right right now, education is kind of an interesting position, or in an interesting position, where um, at least in in most countries now, um, early education is primarily in person. Although there's more and more you know online stuff going on in kindergarten through twelfth grade schools. Just talking about the U.S., for example. Um, so the data picture there is kind of different. The schools do have quite a bit of data about students. In fact, they have a lot more than they used to, and they have lots of test scores and all that. But it's in um, you know kind of archaic database setup, student information systems, and so on. So it, it's not right now being used to generate information on a day-to-day basis that teachers and students could use to improve their own learning. Um, but still, so the challenge there is how do we do some things, how do we figure out some things that teachers could actually do in the classroom to kind of assess how their students are doing and also have the information they'll need on how to act on those data. And then occasionally we'll provide them test scores or whatever and tell them what to do about those and so on. But that picture, that old traditional picture is really changing now that more and more students are studying online um, and particularly in universities now, we've mentioned a couple examples before, of um, you, you know universities kind of you know, going all in on online programs, and you probably heard about the big MOOCs and mm-hmm. um, universities that are putting a lot of their course content online for free and all that. That is really opening up the analytics opportunities. 
um, and uh, in, in a number of different ways. And one of the big ways is when you have a whole bunch of people, when your enrollments are kind of open and anybody can go into a program, um, you're going to get people who have all different sorts of backgrounds, which is going to mean some of them are going to do really well with whatever the content is. Let's say it's an AI course or something you want to teach, because th that's really a good example. I don't know if you heard about um, you know, a researcher a while ago who, st who started an online AI course. Mm -hmm. in something like 50,000 people signed up for it. Wow. And, um, I, you know, the number who actually finished it was minuscule. Mm. I'm thinking it was like 10 people. It was something, it was somewhat wow. more than that, but you know, everybody was really interested in it, but it's people who are coming with, you know, no prior knowledge, no background or whatever. So if you're going to make online education work, you need to have a way to figure out what kinds of people are starting the program. What are their backgrounds and what do they need to know that they might need not, they might not know right now in order to be successful in this program, and how do we give them that additional information? Mm -hmm. And by the way, they may have a bunch of other problems too. They may have financial issues, so they're struggling you know, to feed themselves and their families day to day, and all sorts of other things going on. So it's gonna be critically important um, to really make education work for everyone online, to know who the students are and as much as possible about them. And there's lots of ways we can talk about you know, how you might collect that. So you know, if you've had students be in online programs for like 12 years and in their early education and now they're going into college, you could potentially know a huge amount about them mm -hmm. that could, you know, make it possible to really help them much more effectively um, as they move further their college education and even beyond into the workplace. Uh, now, this raises some kind of privacy issues, too. You know, we might have so much information about students that someone could use that information in harmful ways. But that's another issue, too. How do we deck the data? How do we protect the um, privacy of the students we're dealing with in a case where we're trying to use everything we know about them to help them learn more effectively and efficiently, which does imply that we've done a lot of analytics so that we know which kinds of programs, which kinds of teaching, and what kinds of support beyond teaching work best for which types of students. So that's the, you know, that's the optimal future, you know, using analytics, at its best to kind of help everyone. And, you know, there's some negative possibilities there too, because we don't want to get into things like um, in schools now, identifying a bunch of students who are likely to fail and then telling teachers, you know, this 40% of your students are likely to fail. That, that tends to have a really negative effect mm -hmm. on both the students and the faculty. What we want to do is, you know, here's what kinds of help all each of your students need to know. And we'll put them in four different groups. This group needs this, this group needs that, and some other group needs something else, as opposed to, here's the students who are probably going to drop out in six months. It's much more about, here's what you should be doing for these students. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that's how, you know, I see the use of analytics and kind of is one of the fundamental themes of the book, too. How do we, how do we make it move in a direction where the information being provided can actually be used to effectively help students? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And I totally agree with that. Uh, point that you know, like it, it's also about how you communicate those insights. I yeah. uh, I read a recent study where they like the researchers went to a school and went to a few classes and picked randomly students, absolutely randomly, and said to the teacher that these are uh, these students. You know, we did a test and these students um, performed higher, so they're you know they're they're your top students. And but there was no actual test. The the yeah. That was all done at random. And indeed, after a while, the statistical significance 
number of those students that they picked at random were doing much better because the teacher was now focusing on them, was like uh, giving them more attention, more knowledge. And so indeed, you have to be careful about how you communicate. Um, Yeah, but very, very interesting field. So you like, we can collect data on how people learn from very early on. And that's true. Like here in Australia, um, one time I uh, was talking to someone and I found out that their kids in school, they actually no longer write. They just use iPad, you know, for everything. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. I think that's a very progressive approach. I, like, kids don't even know how to write in that school. It's not, they just know how to, like, sign. And yeah. if you think about it, that's, that's the only thing you'll need in life, the writing anyway. Um, but yeah, so, like, there's basically everything's digitized, lots of data. Um, okay, that's that's more kind of like the earlier education. But what about for professional, for people who are um, who who we don't have that data because, like in their generations, ten years ago, we did everything wasn't digitized. Uh, what kind of data points are you focusing on there? Well, then it becomes <clears throat> again, you know, if you're going to do professional training for people who are already working in a career, let's say, and there are there are several Kaplan programs that do this too for people who are. Um, financial planners, let's say, in Australia, mm-hmm. it's become a big thing. I think in many different countries, you know, yeah, he- yeah. helping figure out, helping people figure out what to do with their money. Well, yeah. there are different levels of certification you can go through yeah. um, in that field. So there are people, you know, kind of working constantly to improve their knowledge so they can um, get higher and higher levels of certification and so on. So, the, the, I mean, there are a couple of critical things there. One is, and <laughs> Unfortunately, I have to say this is not true in many of these fields right now. You have to define very clearly what it is, what your learning outcomes are um, for the people that you're trying to train. And then you have to measure where they are with respect to those. Like how far are they away from achieving a specific outcome? What skills are they missing? Um, and the most efficient way is to you know, do some assessments up front, some testing up front, figure that out for all students, and then, you know, just give them the skills that they actually need to move forward and, you know, advance to the higher level of whatever it is they're trying to achieve. Um, Unfortunately, none of that is working all that well in many fields, um, partly because people, even, you know, certifying boards have not been great in, in many different fields about determining what it is that financial planners actually need to know and be able to do to be effective and best serve their clients. So that's that's a big part of the work too. And that's true for you know all levels of learning, just getting clear what it is we're trying to teach people in a way that sort of says, at the end of this teaching, here's what we want them to be able to do. Now let's test them and see how much of that they can do already and just train them up on the parts they can't do when they start. I'm totally loving this podcast session because it's uh, like it's we're attacking it from two different angles. Like anybody listening to this, on one hand, we're talking about an industry, like a, an industry specific application of data science, which is in the space of learning. Um, mm-hmm. And on the other hand, you can apply all these things to your own learning. Everybody listening to this podcast, by, by definition, is already interested in learning. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. And this tip, this is another tip, right? Like identify learning outcomes. On one hand, if you are a data scientist in the industry of education, definitely super important to incorporate that into your analysis, into one of the data points that you're collecting. But on the other hand, if you are just learning something online, um, you now no longer need to apply that 
uh, insight identifying the learning outcome. You no longer need to apply into a cohort of people or to a group of students or to an education facility or a course. You need to apply that to yourself. Like you're taking a course yep. online. What yep. are your learning outcomes? You know, or you want not not just taking a course. You want to learn something. Like, like sit down, identify what exactly are the outcomes you want to do. So do all the same analytics that you would be doing as a data scientist in the industry, but rather than doing it for many people, for a whole segment of customers, do it for yourself. And because you have all the insights anyway, right? Like we all know how we learn. We all know what we're good at, whether we prefer uh, you know, this type of media, that type of media, what times of the day we learn best at, you know, what type of uh, instructors we prefer. I think that can be even more specific if you're doing it, you're applying all these insights to yourself. What, what do you think, David? I think that's really a great insight. And, you know, it, it reminds me of what you were saying earlier about how really everyone's going to need to be a lifelong learner. People have talked about that, but it's really becoming more and more true. Even, you know, used to, you, you might in the old days might have retired when you're 55 or 60, but people are working till they're 90 now. Mm -hmm. And they're, learn, you know, having to learn new careers and, you know, adjusting their knowledge. So, I, I mean, to me, that's sort of an exciting prospect. You know, you just you keep on learning. But knowing how to do it more effectively um, will be a huge advantage for, for anyone who's able to do that. And one of the fun things about involved, being involved in learning analytics is, you know, if you're, if you're a data analyst, you're connected with learning people and you are finding out kind of from your own data, the own analyses you're doing, what things are work best for people studying what types of things. So you may say, Hey, I, you know, I'm having a little difficulty figuring out how I'm going to learn this, but yeah, I was just doing some analysis that sort of shows if you do these four things, you'll be more likely to succeed than if you don't. So you can kind of learn from your own work too in this field. Mm, yeah, for sure. And uh, things that will help you as a learner. Yeah, definitely. And, and speaking, it's kind of like, <laughs> I always think of, uh, you know, pr I love professions like that. Like for instance, uh, a psychologist, right? Like that, for, or let's say, let's say like a, a profession, like we said, uh, financial planner or psychologist, people who can use their profession in their own life to their advantage, right? Like if you're a psychologist, then when you're talking to people at a, at a bar or at a restaurant, you can use your profession there and then to identify patterns if somebody's lying to you, somebody's saying the truth. Whereas if you are no, um, if you are a stockbroker, not so much. <laughs> you can really yeah. use that in day to day. Um, okay, let's, uh, speaking of um, things that can help your learning, what are some of the problems in student learning that you, from your experience, are like best, like you found solutions to or are easy to solve with learning analytics? Do you have any examples? Well, I don't know if there are any problems in education that are actually easy to solve, <laughs> uh, but there are definitely problems that uh, learning analytics can can help with. And um, we've, we've been talking about some of those, like, you know, in the, chapter I mentioned that I wrote on um, persisting. persisting at tasks, yeah. Um, one of the things we've actually learned from analytics is that it's more effective. People had the idea a while ago that um, since a lot of students drop out of college, like the you know dropout rate is around 50% overall if you look at all different institutions in the U.S., about half the students don't make it through a you know to a college degree well depending on where they start the percentage is much higher for very selective universities you know like harvard and places like that because they're selecting students who kind of already know how to succeed and they have the skills they need to deal with it and so on but most places are 
are are not doing that. So, so Harvard, Harvard has a less lower dropout rate, right? Yeah, they're I think I don't know eighty eight percent or something. Succeed, um, yeah, um, make it through and succeed. And actually, you would I'd expect it almost to be higher than that. So I'm not positive about that, but it's very high. Yeah, and um, some some open programs <clears throat> that we were referring to before. Um, online open universities, it's maybe like 20%. Hmm. Um, and many community colleges, which are two-year colleges that basically take anyone who's graduated from high school. In fact, you don't even have to have graduated from high school. You can start taking. So it's kind of anybody who can go there. You know, their numbers might be 20, 30% mm-hmm. of the students make it, you know, get out of the community college and actually end up graduating. Um, so some people have looked at those numbers and said, well, what we need to do is basically give people pep talks um, and tell them about the value of a college education and how much more money you'll make and all that. So maybe in our orientation programs, we'll try to motivate people to stick with it in their programs. Mm. And sometimes there have been kind of small effects from doing that, but mostly those types of you know programs cheering people on haven't been that effective. What's more effective is figuring out how to help people day-to-day deal with the tasks they have to do that day or the assignment they have to complete that week in the face of maybe there's a lot of crazy things going on in their lives or whatever. So this is where the analytics can come in. If we can detect when people are starting to tail off a little bit in their performance and maybe even have some, you know, bots that are, you know, talking to chatbots that are talking to them and saying, gee, it looks like you're not doing much today, what's going on, and getting some feedback that says, oh, my God, you know, we just had this horrible event in our family, you know, someone died or whatever, and it's really affecting me and so on. Um, At this point, we probably can't, we probably wouldn't want to try to, you know, automate the response to that, but at least someone who could then connect with the student and support them could help them. But anyway, the, the point is, um, the, the analytics should be used to kind of monitor how people are doing on a day-to-day basis and provide support when it's needed um, to help them keep going. That has proven to be, you know, at least from all the research we've seen so far, much more effective than some, you know, kind of upfront canned messages about what the value is of, you know, su- succeeding in the end. And okay, now get started and you're on your own for the rest <laughs> of the time. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, and, uh, that I would say that's where the advanced forms of analytics that we have now available to us come in. Like once you, it's such an individual thing, right? Like you, right. you're almost right. talking about tracking, not rather than like a group of people tracking an individual person, like kind of, yes. uh, like, you know, measuring their heartbeat in a, in a hospital, there'd be an analogy of this. Like everybody has their own heart rate and you want to see when it's starting to drop. Okay. That's. That's a bad sign or when the blood pressure is changing. So here you, you want to, uh, we'd, we'd use things like advanced machine learning or even uh, yep. to the extent of deep learning, artificial intelligence, reinforcement learning to build a uh, virtual profile of how the person learns, kind of like a virtual avatar of their learning journey to ensure that they're sticking to it. Like, for instance, somebody might be learning at a pace of, you know, I don't know, like... Um, 10, 10 units of content per day. Somebody might learn, be learning at a pace of five units per con- of content per day and for, or per week. And for uh, either of those people, that's their normal rate. You can't compare a person to a person. But on the other hand, you, you can, you should, and as you mentioned, you should compare how the person is tracking. Are they getting better or are they getting worse? Are they stable in their uh, amount of content consumed and how, how their learning is progressing? 
And yeah, that's very exciting that um, advanced yeah. forms of uh, data yeah. analytics come in. Like, what kind of what kind of a, a data analytics have you seen in the field? Like, is it gotten to the state of AI and uh, reinforcement learning yet? Uh, yes, I mean there are, there are that those are sort of on the research edge of things. But I have to say, first of all, the way you just described things is kind of a fantastic description of the field <laughs> of learning analytics and, and where it's heading um, and what some of the opportunities are. And, you know, these are topics that are discussed in several different chapters in the in the book. But um, as you said, it's really if we can if we can make it work to figure out individually what's happening for each student and then how to respond is a key part of it too. Mm -hmm. And that you could get from, you know, your big data sets where you actually are looking at lots and lots of different people who maybe have similar profiles, uh, similar educational backgrounds, similar motivational stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you can be asking questions along the way too, like how confident do you feel about what you're doing right now? Um, and then responding to people say, God, I, I don't know whether I can handle this or not, or other mm -hmm. people. I mean, people get overconfident too. So that's mm -hmm. another interesting sort of thing. People uh, think, oh man, this is easy. I'm not going to spend any time at all at this. So they sort mm -hmm. of underperform because they're too confident about their skills. So you have all these different things going on for students. Um, and we have the ability now to, um, you know, so, sometimes it would be surveys, actually, our asking people questions about themselves, but other times it will be, we can just watch, we can directly observe what they're doing. Um, you know, some people are experimenting with, uh, you know, using the cameras in your um, computer and, you know, facial recognition things to tell what your emotions are Wow. at a, at a given point. Now that... <laughs> Some people have concerns about the privacy issue there, but if if the goal is you know to do things like help people and say, wow, I, you know, are you really feeling okay about this, or, or is it is it seeming like you know something you're struggling with just kind of by looking at uh, your facial expressions and so on? So you know the the opportunity is tremendous to do all sorts of things for students that we might do if we individually, as very skilled teachers, were helping them. But there's no way teachers in classrooms with, you know, you're a high school teacher, you have six classes, you have altogether 300 students. There's no way you could help all of them mm -hmm. in a way that we could be helping them online with the, with the right kinds of analytics and, you know, some, some AI support for um, well, even doing things like um, evaluating complex student work, like students write essays or give speeches. Um, right, right now we're pretty bad in education at having students write a lot of stuff and giving them really good constructive feedback because it just takes too long for human people to do that. But, mm. um, you know, there are lots of people testing AI approaches to giving, you know, not just a mark or a grade or a score, but really constructive feedback about what's missing in the argument you're trying to make and why it's not as convincing as it could be, mm. for example. Um, so lots of interesting things going on that we haven't really figured out how to scale up yet, um, but but that that is kind of starting to happen. You know, bigger and bigger tests. Figuring out how do we? You know, we got ten thousand people studying around the world, studying the same t course at the same time. You know, tr and every ten weeks you get another ten thousand people. Tremendous opportunities to learn more about what would help those people in that course. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Fantastic. I love I love your uh, idea you mentioned about using facial recognition for mm -hmm. me personally if that's gonna help me learn hell yeah i'm all for it like 
I don't mind uh, recording my face while I learn some topic and then getting an analysis report or the AI getting better at understanding when I'm going through, you know, for, for example, what would be very valuable to me is if an AI could alert me at points in time when I'm feeling tired, when I'm, you know, you don't really notice, but like you're, it's not like you're feeling like full of energy at one moment and then the next moment you feel super tired. It kind of happens gradually. And usually yeah. for me, I pick that up a bit late. I've picked that up already when I've spent, you know, an, an unnecessary 30 or 40 minutes of working or learning while I'm tired. I would rather the AI through facial recognition tell me when I'm three minutes into that and be like, Kirill, you know, time to get up and go, you know, go for a walk or go have a nap or something like that. And that way I would, you know, get more out of my day for like, for sure. That's a no brainer. You get more out of your day and um, a huge amount of research suggests more out of your learning efforts too, mm -hmm. uh, because it's really ineffective to kind of overdo it on the same topic for too long. You're much better off spacing your learning practice. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, we've probably all had this too, where we were struggling with something, even a dumb thing like a crossword puzzle or something, you know, you're, you're just racking your brain. So walk away for a while and come back and it just becomes easier for you. But actually your brain takes things better in small chunks spaced out mm -hmm. than in, you know, the old, I'm going to just cram in all this mm -hmm. information in 24 hours or something. Um, and you might be able to do that, but mostly you're going to forget that in the end. It's not going to, it's not going to last. So yeah, you would be, I, I mean, that's, that's a great example too of how AI might be used. You'd be better off having the program and maybe you'd be more likely to take a break if you get that feedback from, um, you know, an AI system that says, wow, really, really looks like it's time. <laughs> if it's doing it by looking at you, that's probably even better, but it might, it might do it just by kind of times looking at how much yeah. time you yeah, like cars have, right? Some cars say, yeah. oh, you've been driving for three hours, then take a break, you want a coffee? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, like, yeah but it could, it could do other things like probably read. I mean, it is hard to learn some kind of things. And there, uh, there is sort of productive effort that you have to put in. And so if you could read the difference between someone who's really being intensely productive versus somebody who's just undergoing a kind of cognitive overload, Mm -hmm. you know, and not making progress, but just <laughs> racking their brains and saying, okay, t you know, take a break on this or look at this from a different angle or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really cool. And with these advanced techniques, you don't like, you don't even need to measure the person's, I don't know, heart rate. And, uh, like you don't need to connect any sensors. You can do all that through like a video camera or, uh, just, yeah, basically you're right. The only concern here is the privacy issue. The, the whole concern people are going to be thinking like, how is my data going to be used? Is it ever going to be leaked and so on? Um, that's that's kind of the main ethical question. That yeah, today. yeah, and that's that's a big thing for education of younger people, um, who you know now everybody kind of assumes there's no privacy online and you know Facebook or anywhere, but um, in the U.S. anyway, there are there are federal regulations protecting the privacy of younger students. So you do have to be careful about that. But I, I'm thinking for, you know, watching someone interact with a math program online yeah. is probably not that risky for students. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I suppose if they started crying and, you know, talking about horrible things their parents have done or something, that could be a privacy issue. But um, so you'd have to figure out how to kind of deal with those things. But but that is a big issue, not not to be neglected. And there will be big policy decisions to be made about that in the future. Yeah. And so so what what are you experiencing right now in, in, uh, in that uh, 
in those ethical considerations from from the data that you have are people becoming more uh, open to it or is it is the opposite happening with what we're hearing about Facebook uh, that that hack that happened and so on yeah. that, are people closing up more um, right now we're not close enough to having enough data about students that it's much of an issue hmm. um, so you know we are doing you know researchers are testing things under controlled conditions where they're getting you know going through institutional review board um, which are basically boards to protect you know, student rights and so on. It's going to become more of an issue when some of this stuff really begins to look promising and, and get used on a larger scale. Mm -hmm. So, um, so far that hasn't started to happen, but it will. Um, you know, we can anticipate probably much faster mm -hmm. than we imagine. Gotcha. And uh, I wanted to run this thing, this by you. I, li I like what you mentioned that it's better to learn in chunks rather than like get an overload. I recently read that it's actually also a good idea to learn multiple things in parallel. For instance, we are all kind of used to reading you know, one book, we finish it, you get a new book and so on. Well, actually, uh, there's, there are studies showing that it's better to read like five books at the same time because <laughs> you, are, you're, you activate different areas of the brain. One might be creative, one might be about history, one might be about you know, mathematics or whatever. And then you also use like uh, use those books to analyze the same topics from different perspectives and and if you think about it that's how we learn in school like we don't learn history for a month and then we learn uh, biology for a month and then mathematics for a month we all learn those things in parallel and we kind of move away from that as we grow up like even as professionals we tend to take like one course on a specific topic until we finish it then we take the next one what are your thoughts on that? Is that is that a, a good insight or is it a misleading insight? Is it a good idea to learn multiple things in parallel or is it better to do it sequentially? Well, the research so far hasn't been conducted for all topics, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, being being learned, you know, any five different topics. But it's really interesting and, and suggestive. And I, I think something that learners should be thinking about and something that, you know, when we get more data on more people studying more things, we'll be able to say something more with more confidence about that. But, you know, so it has been tried in some areas with um, some populations of students. And it's really worth, I think, every learner um, thinking about for themselves. So rather than, you know, spending 12 straight hours just studying some aspect of coding, so they take a break and you know, try to learn something else along with that. My guess is for most people, that probably is gonna end up being a better approach. But um, there, there's no real, there's not enough research right now to say exactly what the rule is. You know, mm -hmm. if you're learning five things, do them each for one hour. Um, Cause there, there haven't been enough studies, but some really interesting, you know, the, the one you picked up on and some other really interesting ones suggest that yes, we should be doing more, more work to test this effect. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. All right. Um, so we talked a bit about artificial intelligence in the field and how that's going. Um, what what are your other thoughts on the space of education? Like we, I think we both agree that education is going to stay, and it's uh, people are going to need to find ways to educate themselves more or re-educate themselves. And we are like artificial intelligence slowly entering the field. Any other um, ideas you can share with us? Like where do you see this field of uh, learning analytics going in the future, and in in general education? Well. <laughs> This is not going to be, sound like too forward-looking an idea, but one of the things that's really holding us back in learning analytics right now is the lack of good measures of learning. 
Um, and it's partly because it's not easy to do and partly because people just uh, don't want to invest in, in doing it. But um, for example, and you know, through kindergarten through 12th grade, we do not have ways that allow us to measure how much students have learned about anything over that span of time. There's lots of little tests and so on, and we could conceivably start to put all those data together. Um, but we, you know, this would take some really smart work by, you know, data data science people working with learning people to build measurement scales that show us on some specific topic in math, well, let's say understanding and application of rational numbers in mathematics. Mm -hmm. How much progress do students make when they, you know, start out in kindergarten learning about, you know, dividing up pieces of pi or something among different students and what fraction does each student, you, you know, to using rational numbers in really complex equations or, in, you know, calculus or, or so on. Um, we, we just don't have that. We haven't built those measurement scales yet. Um, so that's a really important piece of work that needs to be done. And the same thing would happen in, you know, we were talking about professional training early on. Um, we, we, you know, we, we need to be able to figure out how are we measuring learning um, from wherever a person is starting to the end point of expertise in that field. And are there several stages that people go through? Is it a bunch of tiny little steps? Um, so this is really a big thing holding us back. If you want to test analytics approaches or instructional approaches or whatever, and your intent is to improve learning, if you can't measure learning, you don't know how effective any of your analytics or anything else really is. Um, and, and this it's in itself, I think, is something that some of the newer approaches, including AI and, ever, and, and so on, could, could help us do. Um, but we'll need, this will require you know, people who really understand psychological measurement to work with people who've got more interest, you know, new and more interesting approaches to analyzing tons of data we have about student, what students have done and it may not all be good measures of learning, but you know it's all there, and we want to figure out what is this actually telling us about how much progress students are making. Um, so this this is a big area to me, and um, you know I, I think better uses of um, things like AI to do uh, what we don't have enough people to do right now. Uh, to, to connect with students, to provide support, like you know we we're talking about. Um, you've, you've given a couple of good examples earlier, but things like um, students who are just um, struggling with something and may not know what to do about it. Uh, you could ask them a series of questions. There's actually lots of good psychological research about what might be the causes of people failing at a specific task, not being able to get started. It might be they're, they're, they, don't, they don't have good strategies for learning. They don't have the right knowledge. You could have, you know, you could be asking them questions about that and actually making recommendations on that. And over time, with enough data, with enough people, you could be improving the quality of the questions and the, um, you know, the recommendations you're making. Uh, th that's a tremendous opportunity, I think, to me, because we're just, we're just not doing anything effective in that area in education right now. Gotcha, gotcha. So interesting. It's like, uh, it's like a closed uh, loop uh, model where you make recommendations, and then basically, like like Amazon, it makes rec or Netflix, it makes recommendations right. on what to watch. You watch it, and if you do watch it, and if you do like go through a certain amount of like that video or movie, that means it was a success, and that means it it learns from that, 
and it makes better recommendations further on and then those recommendations are now also fueling it kind of learns from its own recommendations a closed loop modeling system exactly uh, right but as you correctly pointed out to set that up you need to first like uh, like this field in general needs to first understand how to measure learning you can't manage what you can't measure right and right, right. that that i see like from from this conversation i can see that's one of the big challenges it reminds me of what in uh, in data science we have um structured data or no, not structured we have um um what is it called we have data where it's like words and like text analytics and so on and and then we on the other hand we have just like numeric data that is already yeah structured and unstructured data so we have structured data that is already in tables and so on that's easy to analyze and there's unstructured data which you have to come up with like ways to analyze it the similar thing here you don't have like like in you know computer games you don't have like a progress bar above the person saying how well they've learned you know a skill right it's very individual for every person you have to find out what questions to ask them uh, how to measure that uh, from uh, you know qualitative data quantitative data um, it's it's very challenging but i think it's a very exciting field to be in yeah i i, I completely agree and you know there are we, there are some people doing data science work in many universities now um, with the university level data, but um, they're still not dealing with all these basic issues, measuring learning and so on that we're coping with. But I, I if, if if I had to make a prediction, I I think uh, data analytics is just going to sort of explode into whole new realms in education in the next five to ten years. So. Any, anybody who wants to get into that, I think it's going to be a really exciting area to be in. Fantastic. David, thank you so much for sharing your insights. It's, it's been such a good and exciting conversation for me. Like I, it's hard to imagine, but it, we've actually been you know, almost an hour talking, and uh, I'm totally, like, totally immersed in this. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming and sharing these insights. Um, before I let you go, could you tell us where we can... Uh, where listeners can uh, follow you, get in touch, or uh, specifically where they can purchase your book. What's what are some of the best channels to get it? Well, the book the book is on Amazon now, um, so you can pick it up there. Learning analytics and education, and uh, uh, and I'm on LinkedIn. That's that might be one good way for people to connect, um, and you know Facebook and other ways. I'll, but I'll you know if you're interested, I can give you an email here too that you can. Okay, sounds good. With people. Your LinkedIn is great, and we'll include any other contact details on the show notes page as well. Sounds good. Awesome. Well, I was hoping it would be a fun discussion, and, and boy, it has. So thank you. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Thank you very much, David, for coming on the show. It was a massive pleasure. Thank you. So there you have it. That was David Nimi, Vice President of Measurement and Evaluation at Kaplan. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with David as much as I did and picked up some very useful tips for yourself, whether it is to apply to your own education or whether it is in a, or about the space of online education and doing analytics in the space of online education. I personally love that this podcast for that, that it had both components. My favorite takeaway was to identify learning outcomes that before you learn something you need to sit down and understand what are my learning outcomes that I'm after because that way you set yourself a target and it's easier to go towards and of course there are plenty of other tips if you're interested further in this space of 
analytics in the space of education in this specific industry, then make sure to pick up David's book, which is called Learning Analytics in Education, and it's available on Amazon. You can find all the show notes for this episode, including the URL to David's LinkedIn at www.superdayascience.com slash 219. There you can also find the uh, transcript for this episode. And on that note, we're going to wrap up. But before you go, if you know anybody who is interested in the space of education, who can benefit from learning about data science in and analytics in the space of education, or somebody who is a lifelong learner and would be interested in the tips that David shared here, then make sure to forward them this podcast and share this information with them. And on that note, I look forward to seeing you back here next time. And until then, happy analyzing.